When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. And today, Ben, we are going to talk about uh, 10 ways that the car is becoming more than a vehicle. And I know that a few of these we've already touched on, but this article, when I, when I read this article, and it is from Popular Science, mm-hmm. and we're going to kind of follow along here, but when I read this, this was a real eye-opener for me. I mean, it, yeah. it really branches off into different directions that I, I really didn't expect it to go. I'm, I'm surprised by some of this material today. Yeah, me too. And I'm glad you said that because I felt a little outclassed there uh, for a second. It's different when you see all of these innovations some of which can seem, I don't know, relatively obvious. Mm-hmm. It's different when you see all of them combined into one thing and then you start to contemplate the implications of this and all the directions that this thing can go into. Uh, you know, it reminds me a little bit, just at the top, and I want to see if users agree with this. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of how uh, once upon a time phones were just phones and just did telephone calls, and now your phone is increasingly something different. I, th- I think we're looking at the same kind of evolution. This is exactly what this article is pointing out because, in, I mean, right in the very beginning here is what it says. And I'll read, I'll read this line because I think it's important. It says, cars are in the midst of the most profound transformation in the past 100 years, and that change is only accelerating. Now, think about this. You just mentioned the example of the phones, right? Mm-hmm. Think about desktop computers. Think about laptops. Think about sure. any tablets or devices or whatever. All of that stuff is made just leaps and bounds advances in the last even five years really i mean it wasn't that long ago i had a flip phone that i had to uh, you know push the number three several times to get the right you know letter for a text to go through mm-hmm. that's no longer the case anymore right and that was only like five or six years ago when i had that um things are just advancing so quickly the newest tablets come out with hd you know screen <laughs> resolutions right and, you know I, I can't even tell you know jonathan at tech stuff will be able to tell you more about that sure. flexible can, but, led screen lcd screens yeah and but, stuff. I, but i can tell you that it's advancing quickly and the thing is like and i know that you know everybody thinks well we're always talking about advances that are coming 10 years from now or 20 years from now or whatever right or, yeah you know, futuristic type stuff but these these things that we're talking about right now are happening right now and it's happening fast really right. fast yeah and some of these are processes these are not necessarily products you know what i mean yeah they call them and this is funny disruptive ideas yes and disruptive is a good way because i thought well that's not really a a nice way to say that but these are disruptive because they're meant to stir things up they're meant to say yeah we've been doing it this way for the last 110 years with automobiles Mm -hmm. let's let's change things up a bit and honestly right now we're we're at this uh this point this tipping point where I really believe that some of the stuff is going to start happening fast. And you know that in the last six or seven years, out of the two of us, I've probably been more on the negative side of things than saying <laughs> that, uh, you know, well, I, I mean, it's a good idea. It works in a prototype, but for mass production, this might not really fly. Now it looks like some of these things are really coming to fruition, you know? Yeah, and I wouldn't say you've been negative. I've, you've been, I've been maybe a bit more optimistic, 
but we've both been objective. Yeah. Maybe a good word. You've been skeptical about some of this and rightly so. Okay. Point in, uh, point, point to make here. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, self-driving cars. Right. Automated vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, autonomous vehicles, right? Yeah. And you and I have just about completely reversed direction on, on this automation thing, right? On autonomous vehicles because we've realized that it, you don't require the infrastructure like we thought it was going to be, you know, going to be required, uh, just six or seven years ago. Cause that was the idea that, you know, this is before the Google cars came out. Right. And we had no idea. We thought, well, they're not going to bury, um, magnetic pucks in every road surface in every city <laughs> across the, you know, the, the yeah. world really. And then also make systems that work in the cars. Well, we're finding out that that doesn't necessarily have to happen now. And it's happening, you know, incrementally. We're getting autonomous vehicles incrementally. So, yeah, um, stops and starts. All of this stuff is, is in here. So as we go through this top 10 list, mm-hmm. understand that, you know, some of this stuff is happening right now and it's, and it's more exciting than I thought. Well, let's dive into number one. In the past two decades, automakers have cut their seven to 10 year product development life cycles in half. So for anyone who doesn't know, a product development life cycle, seven to 10 years, what that means is that you start with this product, this car A, let's call it car A to be objective, mm-hmm. right? So you start developing uh, different iterations of car A and different prototypes and volumes of it. Uh, this is a seven to 10 year process, right? Yeah. You start from, uh, the, the napkin, napkin sketch. Yeah. All the way through when there's a uh, working vehicle. All right. So we know that, uh, now it takes an automaker maybe five years, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe less. We could say even three to five years. It's pretty close. And, uh, that is a heck of a lot of stuff to do. That's a soup to nuts car, right? Yeah. Five years. That's amazing. Uh, but McLaren, that some of you may recognize if you're a fan of racing or have ever listened to this show, McLaren says that we can take it to less than half that time. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. They're going to shrink it even further because uh, they're actually working out of the Formula One, uh, Formula One skunk works there, you know, and uh, uh, where are they outside of London? And uh, they've got so they've got this incredible facility that they're working in. Right. And of course, you know, they build uh, supercars as well. Right. Yeah, they they build supercars. They also build uh, components for vehicles. But the thing about the, the thing about a skunk works that we should let people know, if you're not familiar with skunk works, uh, skunk works is the, uh, secret project stuff in, in the term originates from government contract workers like Lockheed has a skunk works. This is like real intense R and D. Right. Exactly. And so this here, this is a little bit of a, um, stylistic twist on it. It's they're not actually going to shoot you if you show up. <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. But this is the uh, the F1 facility. Yeah. And you can imagine it's very advanced. And, of course, they're putting together supercars as well. So, you know, there's always that angle to it. You know, everything's handmade and, you know, play, you know the vehicles are, are very meticulously carried from one station to the next and, and put together very carefully. Well, they are they're not only just building what they already produce. I mean, they're not just mm-hmm. mindlessly putting together car after car after car. Right. They're also working on new product all the time. And, and I mean, an extremely quick rate. And this was a real eye opener, Ben. Get this, how fast they're working. They <laughs> I, I can almost not even believe this. Developers strive to engineer and test a new piece of technology every 20 minutes. I just I can't even deal with it. Every 20 minutes. So That's every amazing. every 20 minutes they are trying to engineer and test that new technology and they're saying that you know this is so much faster than a, than a standard or than a, a traditional manufacturer would do this right this is a brand new process mm-hmm. and um what they do is they start out with a human in a simulator they don't even start at like you know with CAD drawings or anything like that they don't even begin there they don't start at the drawing board they start at a simulator with a human and they make observations as to how the human is reacting to the simulator pretty incredible and they say that you know this this goes to race cars uh, street cars everything so they say that you know the the race cars can differ by as much as about 80 percent from those fielded just the year prior that's how quickly they develop these things so so race car their race cars are you know evolving that much faster than everybody else's it's it's incredible and they're doing the exact same thing with their street car program Mm -hmm. yeah mclaren's been working with sports cars for a while but they produced uh since you know I'd say the 2000s, they've been producing a new or significantly updated model every year. 
So this winter, uh, McLaren launched the P1, and this is one we did a show on, right, Scott? It's yeah. a seven-figure, ultra-high-performance plug-in hybrid. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm sorry. I started to get excited there when you talked about it because <laughs> that was an incredible car. If you haven't listened to the uh, McLaren P1 episode, mm-hmm. uh, you know, take a moment to go back and listen to it because there's so much going on with that vehicle, and they develop so much faster than anybody else. I mean, four times faster than the competition. That's so crazy. Incredible. And, you know, the thing is, like we said, you know, they don't have, they don't use paper. They didn't use CAD. They go right to the simulator, right to the human and the simulator. And they, and they take driver feedback and they make adjustments as they go. Mm-hmm. And that's part of how they get this technology out there so quickly. Um, you know, one of the guys that works there, he's, uh, he's, his name is Jeff McGrath and he's the vice president of McLaren Applied Technologies. And he says, we don't waste millions of dollars on prototype testing. Um, you know, we design cars of the future before even the first part, you know, before we even machine a single part. Right. That's how it, that's how it happens. And, um, one really interesting thing here to kind of wrap this, uh, this McLaren conversation up and we'll move on to number two then. Sure. Um, they say that they're hoping in about a year they'll be free to be able to talk to us about some of the, uh, I guess more standard passenger car companies that they're that is starting to work with them and, and use this technology that mclaren is doing like their way of thinking and the most exciting part i think they really buried the lead here uh jeff mcgrath goes on to say i'll bet in 10 years you can go to a showroom and have a car designed for your driving style and the kinds of roads you drive so that if you think about that what he's saying is that you can have custom-built cars you Average regular person, not you know the uh, chic of made up kingdom somewhere, you know. Yeah, th- I mean we've seen that happen in the past where there's like a custom tailored uh, Ferrari or something. Sure, built, right? but that's that's such a that's such an elite thing, you know, that most people could never afford. Oh, abs- a bespoke Ferrari, absolutely, right? and it made worldwide news when it would happen, you know. And uh, and now they're saying that you know that may be something that. Uh, it's just kind of a not everyday thing, but uh, more common than it is now. That's for sure. And moving on forward to the future, number two. And Scott, you know our forward-thinking tech stuff crew is excited about this. A printed car. Yeah. And we've talked about that too, right? Yeah. A 3D printed car, um, not just one piece of it, but the whole whole thing. Now, here's the thing. We've talked about this already, and I think, was it called the Irby or something like that, maybe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had a weird name, right? It did. And uh, there was a car that, you know, someone had printed, and they, they printed all the panels and the interior parts and everything, and everything that they could print, really, you know, except for the electronics. Right. There were some there were some material demands that they couldn't print. Like, you can't really print uh, tires. Yeah, that's right. And they were going to make a trek across the United States, and it was going to be a big deal, right? Yeah. Okay, so uh, I, I'm not even sure if that ever happened or not, but this news has interrupted the uh, whatever was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, a company called Local Motors um, decided that they were going to print a vehicle on stage at a conference. And, well, while everybody was there, you know, like during the, the weekend that this conference was happening, it's going to take 40 hours uh, to print the entire vehicle, you know, and they were going to add a powertrain to it and then drive it off the stage. And that's exactly what they did. They did it right in front of everybody. So they built the frame and the body as a solid block. That's right. And there's add-ons, of course, the electronics, as we mentioned, sure, the, the powertrain, power the tires, things like that you can't print. But the body, I mean, everything that, uh, the, yeah, the chassis, as you mentioned, um, some suspension parts, you know, all that stuff that they could print, they did print on stage while people were watching and it actually worked. They drove it off stage at the end of that conference. Now that's pretty impressive, right? Mm-hmm. 3D printing's not anything really new. It's not, it's not brand new. I mean, they've been doing this since like the 1980s, I think. I mean, with rapid prototyping for parts, but printing an entire vehicle, that's really, really something. And I went online to look at, uh, local motors and yeah. pretty impressive site. Yeah. Uh, local motors based out there in Phoenix, Arizona, they have interestingly enough, they've been working with Oak Ridge National Laboratory to, uh, develop a larger scale printing facility. Let me just give you an aside about Oak Ridge because, you know, I'm from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So Oak Ridge National Laboratory is one of the best kept secrets of Tennessee. Uh, for a while in the very, very beginning, uh, it wasn't on maps. And locals knew about it. Really? Yeah, but it wasn't like admitted. It was established. The entire town of Oak Ridge was built by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1942 as part of the Manhattan Project. And I wonder how long before it appeared on maps. Um, well, you know, it, you I know mean, it's roughly? on there now. Uh, let's see. I think, um, 
I mean, just I'm not sure. I have to ask my parents, but I I know it was secret through the 40s and probably the 50s. That's pretty interesting. I wonder why. uh, I wonder what the secrecy was at that time. They were working on nukes. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they were working on nuclear weaponry, nuclear desalinization projects, or maybe nuclear weaponry is not fair to say they were working on nuclear technology. Okay, sure. So you had to keep it super, super secret. Could be propulsion or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um. So. Eventually, yeah, eventually it did come to light, and they've continued to do a lot of leading, globally leading research in various fields. Like they're working on a new supercomputer with IBM as we speak. So Oak Ridge National Laboratory is a legitimate mad science institution. They're, oh, very cool. They're up there with DARPA as far as my DARPA and Google as my picks of people to print cars. Oh, that's pretty cool. And now uh, this Jay Rogers, who is the CEO of Local Motors, he's actually moving to Tennessee in order to be next to the lab or to be near the lab so he can, you know, kind of supervise what's going on there. And um, they're saying that, man, this is incredible, Ben. He says there's no bigger innovation in the history of the last 100 years than the 3D printed car. Now, that's a pretty bold statement. I understand. And a lot of people will say, I don't know. I don't think it's really going to happen. But I mean, take a look at the car. It was called the, uh, the Strati, S-T-R-A-T-I. Yeah. Strati or Strati. Uh-huh. Um, and that's the car that they actually printed on the, on the stage. But, you know, Local Motors has got other vehicles that they, they've got kind of in their back pocket they've been working on for a while. Right. Um, if you go to their website, which is, uh, let's see, it's Local Motors. I think it's just localmotors.com. Mm-hmm. And you can find that, you know, they've got this off-road race car that they, uh, that's also street legal, by the way. It's called the Rally Fighter, and I think there's been some some news about that one recently, within the last year or so. Uh, they also have a pretty cool motorcycle that they just simply call the Racer, which is, I mean, not a very imaginative name, I know, but they're busy. Uh, they're, they're busy people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very cool design. Uh, they also have um, oh, this is weird. They also build an adult drift trike, which uh, which is kind of funny when you think about it, but it it looks like so much fun when you see people using them. Really, I mean, I know you know adults on tricycles. It's a little bit silly. I get it. But uh, when you see what these guys do with these drift trikes, uh, you may pull out the checkbook to buy one because they're really cool. Really go from skeptic to the checkbook. Huh? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and then they also have this uh, kind of a weird retro-styled cruiser bicycle thing that's uh, motorized, mm-hmm. which is look it looks really cool. Anyways, it's a it's a neat site and uh, if you check the stuff out, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. Um and you know, local motors, they've they've got some products under their belt. They, they know what they're doing. So hopefully they can come out with this, uh, this 3D printed car. I mean, cause we've, we've been hearing about it now for three or four years. Yeah. If they're going to do it, but they've got, uh, they've got a lot of toys too on their website. Yeah, they do. So this is just coming out around the holiday season. I'm going to point out if you have, if you have some people who like toys, this might, and cars, this might be a good place to send them. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe buy your boss a drift trike. <laughs> Maybe give them the wrong message. I don't know. Oh yeah, you anymore. have to you have to know your boss pretty well. I guess so. I'm interested in what you think about number three on this list, Scott. Hmm. Number three on this list is something a little different. Number three on this list is entirely about Mary Barra. Yeah. Now this is more of a um like instead of a transformative idea, this is a you know I uh, I guess transformative people. Yeah. This is um, like a a social thing. Yeah. Transformative person. It's a it's a cultural change. Within the organization. And what I'm talking about is General Motors and the 106 year old, um, you know, foundation that they've laid for this, for this company. Um, you know, it's been kind of always the, uh, always kind of been the good old boys club. You know, that's the way it's always worked. They've always had a male CEO until very recently. Yeah. And you know, okay, that's one thing, right? So that's one barrier that's been broken, right? So there's a, a female CEO. It's Mary Barra and, um, the title of this one is The Future of Car Making, and she's got kind of a different way of looking at things. And it's, so it's not just that she's a female in the office, right? There's, right. No. There's a, there's a thought process here that's completely different from what we see in the past. And, you know, as they said, of the big three, you know, just even of those three Detroit automakers, the, you know, the Chrysler, GM, Ford, mm-hmm. um, General Motors is probably the most complex organization that, that uh, out of any of them, really. I mean, as far as right. the way, um, levels of bureaucracy and, and um, as they say, cultural mediocrity really goes. Mm. And, and I don't know if I really like the way that sounds, mediocrity. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit, I think, biting or insulting. But there's no escaping the fact that uh, GM had a lot of middle management mm-hmm. as one part, and there were there were lots of approval points for decisions because what they what they did, I think. Um, 
which which I can see the validity of is that they had this system where making a decision became like making a car. There were there were established ways to test the decision, established uh, points that it had to go through. Mm-hmm. And what that can become sometimes is just a bunch of points for something to go wrong rather than a bunch of points to make sure it's a quality decision. Okay, I get it. All is right. that I, is that fair? It is. I mean, it's an enormous, uh, enormous company. Right. There's I, so many moving parts. I, I'm sure that the, uh, like they said, the levels of or layers of bureaucracy that you have to go through just to make one tiny little change to anything uh, would be just outlandish. I mean, what mm-hmm. you would have to, the, the hoops that you would have to jump through to make that of, happen, right? A lot of cooks in the kitchen. Now, they say that, you know, this year, and they point right to the recall that happened just this year with the, uh, with the ignition switches. And, you know, of course, these, these so far, I mean, to date, they, they think it accounted for 13 fatalities. And they'd say that executive engineers and lawyers on the inside knew about the bad part for, for a decade. But, you know, they decided to kind of bury the problem and not say anything because it was just too difficult to get the, uh, the change in place just to make it happen, yeah. right? So what she says, you know, and that's a big, big problem for a sure, company, obviously. Sure. So less than two weeks after she learned of the, the faulty ignition switch, um, she, it, you know, she issued this recall of uh, it was like three quarters of a million vehicles initially, right? Because that's what they thought it affected. Right. And then after that, they raised it to like 1.6 million. And then late later in the year, like mid, I guess mid June, sometime around there, they raised it to 7.35 million vehicles to be recalled. And and it's just because she's finding out, like, well, how deep does this problem go? And and you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and you realize yeah. just who's involved. She also fired 15 senior level employees, including engineers and loyal lawyers. She started the Speak Up for Safety program, and this uh, incentivizes employees to point out problems. Um, and they're the, so the argument here in popular science is that this is a disruptive process because the the CEO Barra is. Uh, turning this culture on its head. Um, however, I, I I see what they're saying. It's a good move, but I think it's also what you're supposed to do as CEO. I don't know if to me, to me, it's just is it an, a question of is it an extraordinary thing or is it what you should do if you're the leader? Well, you should do that, obviously, but there's there's a 106 year precedent that's in place here, and the 106 year precedent. Maybe not not all the time, because, of course, they were issued recalls for things that were dangerous or deadly or whatever. They did that. I know they did. Mm-hmm. I've heard of them in the past, but recalls have really only been around since about, what, 1970 or something like that. That's true. Prior to that, it was just like if you bring the car in and there's something that the uh, the dealer knows about, they may or may not fix it. Um, you know, if the company knew about it, I, I think it worked in a completely different way prior to 1970. Okay. So post-1970, I mean, I guess that's the, the era that you're really dealing with here is that, you know, do you cover things up for the money? You know, to, you know, is it is, does it make more sense to just let them kind of slide out there? It's a it's a uh, cost value situation. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously, it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. 
The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenney, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Yeah. Is that the right way to say it? Cost it's a, a risk versus benefit. That's it. Risk versus benefit situation, I yeah. guess. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's the way a lot of decisions were made in the past, and uh, Mary Barra is just kind of shaking things up. Right, like there's a formula, right, for recalls that we talked about in a previous podcast. Yeah. Uh, check out our podcast on recalls. It's not uh, maybe the most uh, feel-good podcast, but yeah. it's good information. Definitely not. Let's move on to something a little more positive. Number four, the chassis reinvented. Yes. Now, this is uh, this is one that we won't spend a whole lot of time on here, but um, this is about a three-seat vehicle called the Blade Glider. Mm-hmm. And the blade glider, so cool. Yeah, it's a the blade glider is a prototype right now, right? And it's made by is it Nissan? Yeah, Nissan. Yeah, it's Nissan. And the reason they did this is because they realized that over the years, uh, you know, the the, the bodies of vehicles have evolved, they've changed, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And, but the chassis, the modern chassis, has relatively has remained relatively unchanged, I guess, sure. for, for decades. Really. Yeah, if you look at the footprint, it's rectangular. It's got a wheel on each corner. Mm-hmm. That's that's the basic frame, and I know we're talking about frames versus unibodies. Right, and all right, that. right, all that, right. But, but just to get down to the bare bones, we're saying that the frame of a car has basically remained unchanged. So what they did was they hacked an aerial atom, and I love that they did this, Ben. Yeah, because we, we did a podcast on the aerial atom too. Yeah, we did, and the aerial atom is a is a really cool car. I mean, I I, I love. The vehicle itself, but they, they actually said, well, we can take this and make it better, right? Yeah, so they moved the front wheels one meter closer together. So this isn't a three-wheeled car yet, but if you look at it, it's got a definite nose mm-hmm. on it. And uh, although this might not look like the most attractive vehicle, uh, it's much more stable on turns and going down straightaways than the standard Atom. Which I find hard to believe. I mean, because that's a fantastic car. That uh, Yeah, the Atom is great. Who'd have thunk it? It really is. So they moved the wheels one meter closer together in the front, and it becomes more stable mm-hmm. a- on turns and, and, and faster down the straightaways. I mean, that's a strange thing, right? Because they can play with the aerodynamics of it then. I mean, mm-hmm. it becomes more like a wedge as it goes down the road. And, again, this three-seat design is really cool. Two seats in the back, one in the front. And the front seat can move toward either door that opens first. I mean, yeah. so it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, That's it's just weird. got a lot of really little interesting little quirks. Now, this one also has in-wheel electric motors and mm-hmm. and an open-top design. Uh, they're saying that this thing may be able to launch as early as 2018. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if this is actually going to come out as a production vehicle, but I kind of hope it does. It looks interesting. Yeah, it'd be nice if it comes out as a production vehicle at 2018, but I'd be willing to wait for one, too. I think they're going to – I mean, so many concept cars start off open top. Yeah. But ultimately, when they get to the showroom, they have a top because people don't want to get rained on. But, I mean, the overall shape of the thing, even if it was a It's going to stay – yeah, yeah. I think if it was a coupe, it'd still look great. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. a, it's, an, it's a neat design. It's totally different. So look up uh, Blade Glider from Nissan and see what we're talking about. And the seat moving – is uh maybe one of my second favorite things on the article on this article because my number one favorite thing here is number five uh elon musk uh the, our our centuries tesla edison uh on the car as a platform yeah that's right now see see this is a guy that knows that open source development is really the only way to create like super fast change in the electric car market, right? This I mean, guy's this, my hero. This guy. is the one. I mean, remember he opened up like uh, all of his patents. I guess he said, you know, you can you're, feel free to use anything that I use in the in the Tesla yep. right now uh, because we just want it to be better. We don't care what it takes. Um, we just want it to uh, just want it to advance from here because we know that even us, you know, who are, who are developing this at you know a rapid rate, we know that if we give it out there to everybody to use, mm. someone's going to come up with something that we didn't think of a different angle. Right. And that's one of the things that was very interesting to watch in the in the news about cars, because if you'll recall, when the idea of him uh, giving away all rights to his patents first hit the news, people were saying, ah, oh, you know, what a great guy. What a what a good guy. And then uh, 
instantly other people went, oh, wait a second. This means they'll all be using his stuff. Yeah. And that, that is, I believe, his ultimate decision, well, not altruism. This comes down to uh, to something that I'll call the bigger picture at the bottom here when we get yeah. to the, the very last thing. I'm going to mention, uh, you know, at the, at the very end what I really think is going on here. And I think I think it's a I think it's exactly what's happening. But I also want to say that there was recent news about this guy. Um, and, you know, there's always recent news. about yeah. Elon Musk. But um, <laughs> one of the things that just came up in the news was something about his Gigafactory idea. And the Gigafactory is where they're going to be creating, um, you know, all these new batteries, right? They're going to be, it's going to be battery producing site, huge factory, right? And it was supposed to be set in Nevada. And <laughs> he decided that he would ask the state of Nevada for $500 million in cash up front in order to build the factory there. That's part of his negotiation, right? Yeah. $500 million in cash up front to build this factory there. And it, and it, you know, it promises the state of Nevada something like 6,500 new jobs at this facility, right? So it's a big deal to them. And, uh, and, and no tax abatements. That's what his idea was, right? So, um, you know, this 500 million, no tax abatements. Um, so they said, well, we can't do that because that takes up most of the budget for our state for the entire year. We can't do it. There's just no way. Right. And so he starts shopping around to other states and saying, here's what I need. I need $500 million up front. And he does the same thing to every single state and all of the states, every state turned him down in the United States. Mm-hmm. They said, no way. We can't, we just can't front it up, you know, the way that is. So he went back to Nevada. And uh, they ended up giving him something like $1.4 billion in tax incentives. And that's where it's going to be. It's going to be in, wow. in Nevada. So, you know, I mean, he didn't get exactly what he wanted, but it's a pretty big tax incentive to to build in Nevada, this giant gigafactory. So we're going to start seeing some massive amounts of batteries coming out of this factory whenever it's produced. I mean, we haven't even seen where the facility is going to be or how much it's going to produce or right and we'll we'll be updating with details when we learn that so far uh tesla has around 100 charging stations in the united states and if you'd like more information about those charging stations do check out our podcast on tesla or one of our podcasts on tesla because we have several um right now 100 charging stations are enough to get you across the country if you're driving a model s uh but by the end of uh, the year, he wants to have charging stations within a 100 miles of 98% of the United States population. Now, hang on. That sounds like a really cool thing, but I would say it's a little bit of a devious, uh, a devious measurement because the majority of people live in urban areas and a 100 miles is a heck of a long way to drive. To charge your car. And on the coast. So it's usually the coastal regions, uh, right? I mean, that's where most of the people live. Right. And there's yep. some major cities that are, that are inland, sure, but, uh, it's primarily located on the coast. You, you can look at the population maps and, and see where the hot yeah. spots are. Yeah. Right? So to say within 98% of the population, um, of the U.S. population. It's I just mean, a little bit, I don't want to say disingenuous, but it's a little bit of a spin. Yeah, I guess so. Cause it's not as evenly distributed across the United States as you might think. So if you're right. trying to make a trip from New York to California, you may find in the middle there somewhere you're going to have some troubles. Right, but Maybe. not for long, apparently, because, you know, I wish we could talk some more about his, the the switching out plans for mm-hmm. the batteries and the gas stations mm-hmm. and the pricing model. Maybe in an upcoming podcast. Yeah, it's pretty smart. But anyhow, yes, Tesla is changing the car into a platform. Yeah, and, you know, the other thing is that, you know, these traditional automakers that, you know, are still kind of, Toying around with the idea now. I mean, I know that General Motors has a pretty serious program. Nissan has a pretty serious program. There's there are manufacturers, and I'm not trying to skip anybody intentionally, but <laughs> other manufacturers are kind of playing around with with electric powertrains. And I I, I know I shouldn't say playing around with because I know that they're serious about it, but uh, they're not quite as serious as Tesla is because that's all they do, right? So the thing is that you know the the, the traditional man on manufacturers their their development is a bit more fractured than what his is because his is so focused, right? At yeah. Tesla. So the companies um use a a huge range of different designs and different standards. Um you know there's not a standard between General Motors and Nissan and and Honda and uh, Fiat or whoever. They're not all using the exact same standard. They're not using the same battery, etc., right? Which ultimately holds back that, that kind of inner fighting holds back innovation. Exactly right. But Tesla, he's just slowly refining his process as he goes, and he's having people develop it and work on it, right, as we said with the open sourcing stuff, sure. right? So it's it's getting better and better and better all the time, and he's going to remain faithful to that standard or to that uh, to that process, right, that that one way of doing things mm-hmm. that's going to uh, make it uniform across the whole 
lineup of vehicles. So well, you know, Tesla is is making this uh, this effort to build a platform and an infrastructure to support it and all that, right? Um, that he eventually then can license or sell to the major auto manufacturers and say, yeah, you can build your Chevrolet on this Tesla platform. This guy is going to be filthy, filthy rich. If you think he's wealthy now, just wait <laughs> until just wait until he starts selling the Tesla platform to General Motors, to Nissan, to whoever, because I think that's what's going to happen. Or at least he's going to sell the battery technology and the standard that goes along with it. Because if he has the infrastructure in place, of course they're going to say, well, that's already in place. You know, why would we not just you know license this from mm-hmm. him? We can still sell cars but they're going to have to use the Tesla battery swapping stations. Yeah, I think that is a brilliant, brilliant plan. And I think you're right, Scott. That's exactly what he's I doing. Mean, uniformity is what it's all about. Ah, and I'm glad you said that, my friend, because speaking of uniformity or lack thereof, here we are at number six. Uh, listeners, if you are checking out car stuff today in your vehicle, first off, Scott and I want to thank you. Secondly, uh, look around your dash. I mean, don't go crazy. Yeah. Keep your eyes on the road. Be careful. Yeah, but what what's going on there? What are you what are you pushing in the interior? What kind of what's your music situation? Do you have a video thing, etc.? Um, Scott and I are kind of old school. You know what I mean? We don't have all the uh, fancy stuff, right? No, definitely not. I'm not sure if I want it. Sometimes, I mean, I guess if it's performance oriented, if I have a car that I need to know up to date engine, like uh, a very good drill down look at how the engine's doing and responding. Sure. Yeah. You know what? I, I think I know where you're going with this because in our cars, or at least in my car, Ben, I don't know if I can speak to the, uh, to the Monte Carlo, the mighty Monte Carlo, but oh, thank um, you. when I get in my car, it's, it's relatively bare bones. It's pretty simple. Analog gauges. Um, sure. There's of course digital, you know, odometer. That's RPM. Fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot of bells and whistles in my car, mm-hmm. but if I go to a dealership and I look at a, a 2014 or a 2015 vehicle, it's like I've just stepped into like a jet fighter or something. Sure, it's, it's, video game. It's so, so much more advanced than what I have. And I mean, even like a, a pretty basic car mm-hmm. is far more advanced than my car. And mine's, uh, you know, 2005. It's not really that ancient or anything. Right. Um, it's just that it's advanced so quickly. It's It's gone so much more high tech than what I had just uh, just nine years ago. So the thing that automakers are doing is uh, in the past 12 months or so, they've debuted a number of ways to display and access information. And the most obvious approach is going to be something familiar to all our gaming friends out there. You guys, heads up displays, HUDs in cars. Uh, this was in luxury cars since the 1980s, granted, but they were too expensive to include in most vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've tried them on smaller scales in a, in a sure. lot of, uh, you know, sports cars even or luxury vehicles, right? Yeah. And the cost of the materials in these has plummeted so that it's possible for, uh, makers like Mazda to include a lower cost HUD in their Model 3. But here's the thing, Scott. So we know that too much stuff going on in your interior, especially if it's not oriented to the job you're supposed to be doing, which is driving, too much of that stuff can be as dangerous as being on your cell phone constantly or texting. So what automakers are really making breakthroughs in is uh, ways to simplify, collect, aggregate, and display information uh, so that you can glance at it and get it. Exactly right. right. Or they're just, you know, making things so that they're intuitive. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot like gaming controllers are, right? That's where they're going to for for the, uh, I guess, the source material for these. Is saying, well, well, these game controllers, people master these super fast. I mean, they yeah. understand quickly where all the buttons are, what all the functions are. Let's try to mimic that maybe on the steering wheel and make things a lot more uh, intuitive for the driver. Instead of having to have them glance down at a button, uh, they just know where it is by feel. Mm-hmm. And you know, I can understand this completely because um, you know my. Elderly grandparents, when they were still driving, they're not driving anymore, but um, they had a vehicle. They bought a brand-new Buick or something like that. And Buick is is kind of, I mean, and I know we're not supposed to say this, but it's kind of marketed to older people, or at least it was then. <laughs> and um, the thing is, like, all the buttons have really small print on them, and there's a lot of them, and it looks really complex. So you can imagine that when somebody who's, you know, close to 90 years old gets into a new vehicle with all these different controls, it can be very confusing, right? Sure, intimidating. Intim- exactly right, intimidating. So, um that's a situation that can actually be dangerous if you don't know where certain features or functions are on your car, right? And that happens all the time. People don't know what their vehicle's capable of doing. So it's almost like you have to learn 
the the operating system of the car, and I don't know if that the operating system is the right way to say it. The but, the interface, the controls of the vehicle to make it do what you want to do. I think that's a great point. It's a point that automakers also notice because now people are looking beyond the HUD. Uh, one thing that I've often wondered about with technology is uh, why we are sort of chained to our hands. You have to use your hands to you know type to hit a button. Um, no matter how advanced the technology is at current speeds, at least. However, uh, Land Rover debuted this thing called Discovery Vision and no relation to the um, nonfiction broadcast company. Uh, and they had an augmented reality interior. So any window becomes a screen, kind of like Minority Report. Um, and you can have gesture control, like what you were talking about. Yeah. You just swipe your arm and the window goes up or down. This is uh, pure minority report stuff, you know? Yeah, for people who are not as spastic as I am, that sounds wonderful. But yeah. I would just be, my car would be doing all kinds of terrible things, you know? Can you imagine a little road rage or something and you uh, throw your arm up in disgust and then suddenly there's <laughs> a, a screen that shows, you know, the image of the vehicle, you know, it shows you what's below the vehicle sometimes, right? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's for an off-road situation, right? I mean, why would you care about what's beneath the vehicle if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a papertarian someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day seriously it's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water it's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging it's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container and that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. But this is not only will I say this is a brilliant move, Scott, but this is also a necessary move. If we can crack the code on intuitive interfaces, then driving driving 20 years from now is going to be very, very different to driving today. Oh, absolutely. And as we mentioned, you know, the game controllers and, you know, mm -hmm. once you learn the buttons and you know, and you know, you know, which button does what, I mean, it becomes very, very easy for them to design around that. They can say mm -hmm. like, well, now we've got them, you know, we've kind of, uh, <laughs> I hate to say this, Ben, we've almost got our, our, 
our um, our buyers trained to know that this is the way our steering wheel works. Mm-hmm. And uh, and once they do know that, they become comfortable driving any car that they put that design into. And hopefully that's the way it works. Hopefully that you know it just becomes that much that, that much more intuitive that you don't have to glance down anymore. You don't have to take your eyes off the road. It becomes a much safer vehicle to drive for you because you're familiar with it. Right. And speaking of familiarity, I'm, I'm killing it with these segues, Scott. Uh, a fellow named Encore Jane wants to make your vehicle a social vehicle. Encore. Encore Jane. Encore Jane. Now, he's the founder of Human, spelled H-U-M-I-N. And Human is actually a, uh, well, it's, it's, a, um, it's a phone app. And this is interesting because they're thinking about developing an app that I guess your your vehicle would use. It's not just their tele for your phone, obviously. So what Human does is it organizes our con- our contact lists into kind of how you and I would naturally think about that contact list. You know, we it's not so much that you would sit in the car and have to spell out the person's last name first. You know, and, and or, or uh, you know just very clearly state it so that the the, uh, the machine understands what you're talking about. Right? Siri, call Scott. Benjamin, and it's like calling Todd in Jimitz, right? <laughs> that's a great example, Ben. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because that's what happens a lot of times. But this organizes things into more like, um, oh, um, a person I met last week, or sure. um, you know, a person who lives in Chicago, or he's friends with, or a person you meet frequently based on uh, your previous interaction. Well, what it does is it gives it gives your contact list meaningful context. Mm-hmm. And and that's important because that's how you think about it. That's how you process it. And that's not how you have to think about it to get that in, information from wherever you're trying to extract it from now. And they're saying that this could be pretty revolutionary for the car because it just makes things that much easier. And it's one less thing that you have to learn. You, have to, you don't have to learn how to talk to your car mm-hmm. to get the information out of your contact list. You're, you're able to uh, more freely associate with things, and it still works. I see. I get it. But I also... Don't like it. Yeah, but you got to remember when we talked about the connected car, right? You know, yeah, that, that yeah. idea of the in quotes connected car, right? Sure. Where everything is happening in the car, it's going to be critical that that's just one less step that you have to take, Ben. That you know, you you can just you can just naturally do this, and it will work. It'll it'll get the information that you need, and you'll say, yeah, that's it. Well, okay. Let me give you an example of this going wrong. Okay. Okay. So in you're not. Um, a social media super enthusiast yourself, right? Correct, yeah. So all the privacy concerns aside, although they are valid, uh, what I would start to wonder is how this affects people that you interact with solely in a car that you normally never meet. Who's the person who leaves work at the same time as you all the time? How much do they know about you? How much do you know about them with human? Um, is this knowledge that you or that other person would be um, would agree explicitly to share had you the choice? Will you have the choice? Or are you better off not knowing something? Are you better off not knowing? I know that's such an uncool thing to say nowadays, but are you better off not knowing some things? Yeah. What if you find out some road rage situation? Well, you know, we've talked about some uh, some some embarrassing situations that could happen with some of this stuff as well, sure. right? Some of your habits that you may not want other people to know about. Right, yeah. Like if they said, you know, uh, ben Bowling goes to... Uh, insert bar name here every Thursday to do a crossword from the New York Times, you know, maybe you don't want people knowing that. But now you've told everybody. Now I've told everybody. And listen, if anyone knows the answer to 26 down from last week. <laughs> also that place, insert bar name, great place. Love the uh, love the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, they have a good euros. <laughs> uh, okay, so number eight, autonomy and in increments. Now, let's not spend too much time on this because we've already talked about some of this at the top um, with automated vehicles. Um, one survey released in July found that Google was perceived as 20 times more influential in the driverless car space than GM, Ford, and, uh, well, Ford and Toyota didn't even make the list. Interesting. Very interesting. So people would trust Google to develop something like that more than they would trust GM to develop something like that. That's what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what was also eye-opening about this is that We've talked about, you know, some of the uh, the Mercedes testing with autonomous vehicles and, you know, the, the systems that they're developing, right? Right. Well, they're also coming out with something that we've also mentioned on another podcast I know called the uh, the S500 Intelligent Drive System, right? Yes. Well, actually, it's on the S500 model, I think. But right. It's called Intelligent Drive. And they're now saying, this is kind of an updated bit of information here, they're now saying that maybe by 2020, they're going to actually start calling these autonomous cars. Now, there was a little bit of a legality issue, I know, 
Yeah. In that, you know, the, the driver has to be behind the wheel or someone has to be behind the wheel mm-hmm. to take over in case something happens, right? And there's all that going on too. But, um, for them to actually say that Mercedes is going to launch autonomous cars by 2020, they're not just saying we're going to launch a car with autonomous features or that, driver's assistance. Yeah, exactly right. Cause there was some, uh, some weasel wording that was going on. I remember <laughs> sure. not just, not just for Mercedes, but for other auto manufacturers sure. as well. And you know now there's this uh, this this latest Google vehicle that doesn't even have a steering wheel or mm. doesn't have pedals inside of it and has this kind of smug looking face on the front. Yeah, and that's totally intentional. I mean, they're not even there's no purpose for that uh, for those eyes and nose on that vehicle. I right? love it. It's it's pretty funny looking. I mean, so if you haven't seen you know I guess, what is it Google's latest self driving car, but the one that they designed, the one that was built in Detroit and then outfitted. At their uh, their Mountain View facility in in California, with mm-hmm. all the uh, all the tech goodies, right? Right. Um, it's a pretty interesting vehicle, and they're saying that that may actually start uh, being used on um, some some of their campus sites, right? You know, like sure. on Google Campus, kind of like golf cart rules. Yeah, or the uh, gated communities where people uh, use golf carts to get around. They may start testing it in those places just to see how it deals with traffic and people, and um, it's a kind of a, I guess, a low impact way of, of testing their product without really putting it out there on public roads because that's pretty limited right now only four states mm-hmm. in the united states allow that and that's nevada california michigan and florida as of today florida as of today as of today no no i'm sorry not, not, <laughs> not florida wasn't like launched today i mean like um as of today it's just those four right yeah but i don't think that'll last very long because it's gonna it's just gonna be too convenient yeah but you know here's the thing ben We've talked about this. We've talked about this so many times, like how they're just kind of creeping up on us, right? It's just inching up yeah. bit by bit. And this is the thing. It's incremental. It's not like, you know, one day there's going to be an autonomous vehicle and it's going to surprise everybody. And as a lot of people are saying, you know, they're doing it the right way. They're, they're being realistic about it. They're not just, sure. just foisting this upon the public and saying, here's a car that can drive itself. They're saying, Trust us. yeah, it's like, well, why don't you try out our new uh, optional lane departure warning system and see how that works? And uh, also, we have these collision avoidance cameras. And oh, by the way, we've got adaptive cruise control that can stop the vehicle if you ap- approach it too quickly in traffic. You know, it's a pain parallel parking. Am I right, guys? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And so, companies like you know, like Volvo and of course Mercedes sure. and and I mean BMW, Chrysler, GM, they're all doing this, right? They're all all kind of incrementally creeping this up on us, and that's on purpose. And as uh, you know, one of the guys here in this article states, true autonomy will arrive with a whisper, not a bang. So, and that's exactly way the way I think this is all going down. I think that it's happening that way. You know what is arriving with a bang? However, that is number nine on the list: fuel wars, ladies and gentlemen, alternative powertrains. Everybody is going after this. What once used to be the preoccupation of a few fringe indie manufacturers has increasingly become the golden grail of the big three and other global big fish in the auto pond right mm-hmm. yeah, that's right and uh, you know of course electric cars aren't anything new right but no but uh and neither is hybrids or anything like that but the way that we're building the hybrids is brand new so you know they make an example here of the porsche 918 spider uh, and they say that in less than five years since porsche has really been involved in this whole thing they've actually become a leader in hybrid technology for this type of vehicle with the 918 Spider, and that's pretty impressive, really. Um, they're saying that you know the, the you know the plug-in hybrid electric vehicle that they have in this 918 Spider, it has two electric motors for zero emissions, you know, cruising, so around town or whatever. Yeah. And then it has uh, this incredible robust battery system for you know which can be applied to any vehicle, really. Um, but it has something called rapid discharge, and this is pretty impressive because. It can output whatever's necessary in order for this thing to uh, to have, you know, world supercar performance. Right. Yeah. Yet at the same time, you might think, well, that just totally screws my battery for the rest of the day. Right. It's <laughs> done. I have to go home and plug it in. Nope. That's not the case because the V8 engine that this thing has can actually power these batteries up to fully charged again, which is something that's unusual because not all of the uh, the hybrids can do that. They can't power the battery back up to a full charge. You have to go back and plug them in in order for it to work. So that's that's one angle. Then there's also the hydrogen angle. Ah, uh, yes, the Toyota FCV. Now, hydrogen has always been one of those um, almost but not quite power sources. Yeah, and Honda was playing around with this early on with its FCX model, and they they tried that for a while. And the problem was the infrastructure, like you said. Right. Uh, there are actually a lot of. Uh, Asian car manufacturers who are interested in building hydrogen cars. 
Um, you know, the Toyota FCV, the reason that we're harping on this one is that it's coming out next year. It's one of the first cars, first production cars, not the first, but one of the first built around a hydrogen fuel cell. It'll cost around 68 grand in early 2015 and it'll reach the U.S. by next summer. Wow, that's, that's actually pretty exciting because uh, we, we haven't really seen much more than just, you know, that, that Honda FCX early on. This one is going to be kind of expensive. You said it's, uh, what, nearly $70,000. Yeah. So pretty expensive for the uh, Toyota FCV. But if it does launch in 2015, it'll be interesting to see what happens there and how many hydrogen stations yeah, I was going to are say, going to pop up. Because, if you find one. Yeah, I mean, it was so limited in uh, in where they could go prior to this. That's right. why it really didn't take off. I mean, there were other reasons, but infrastructure was one major, major problem. And I think Elon Musk was watching that story. Um, I'm sure he was. Yeah, just just real quick, though, there's another thing here that some people might not think of. That is clean diesel. You know, usually when you hear the word diesel, you think of big trucks or, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll say it. It's a good joke in the article. The guy says, uh, if you hear the word diesel in the United States, you think of rumbling commercial trucks. If you're in Europe, you think of underpowered economy cars. Australian listeners, please write in and let me know what you think when you hear the word diesel. <laughs> yeah, um, because it's, it's dramatically changing. Yeah, it is, because there's uh, the recent breakthroughs in the technology have allowed for clean diesel versions uh, to be created. right? And high performance. And that's the other thing mm-hmm. is that compression – Levels are way, way up on these things, and they're able to compete with, uh, you know, like the the GTD, which is one example that's given here, the uh, the Volkswagen GTD. Uh, the performance is, you know, just about on par with GTI, which is the gasoline equivalent of that vehicle. The same mm-hmm. thing, right? And mm-hmm. it's a very popular thing. So these old stereotypes of, you know, some of the uh, the dirty old diesel engines that really aren't uh, aren't all that powerful, that's completely falling away. Yeah, they're outdated. Um all right, so, Noel, if we could have a drum roll, please. This is one of the big reveals last on our list. This one is cell mobility, not cars. Now, I think uh, this is kind of funny. When I read this uh, this title, Ben, I'm going to put you on the spot here. All right. When, when you hear cell mobility, not cars, what does that remind you of? Is there another saying that that reminds you of? Think about it. Think about it carefully. I am. It's on the tip of my tongue. Mm-hmm. Cell Blank, not X. I know you're going to know this. What is it? It is sell the sizzle, not the steak. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. it's an old ad agency thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it sure does sound like it when you say sell mobility, not cars. It's like sell the, the sizzle, sizzle, not the steak. And the idea is that, you know, you you sell the, um, I guess you sell the benefits and not the features. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a little bit complicated, but. Do you I mean, sell the lifestyle? You have to know the features, sure. I mean, that's, that's important, right? And, you know, yeah. the. Comes down to the way that the thing is marketed towards you, right? So the lifestyle, the sensations, the feelings. Exactly right. So what you do is you list a feature and then you add, which means that. So let's say that uh, you know there's a feature that you want to uh, to impress people with on this mm-hmm. vehicle. You say like uh, you know, this car has a 2.5 liter engine with 400 horsepower, which means you'll never get left behind. Blah blah. blah. Exactly. You say add, which means that, and then that becomes the benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And you sell that part of the uh, the vehicle, not the other part. I mean. Sure, you need to tell them that it has a 2.5 liter engine with right, four right, horsepower, right, whatever. Right. That's probably too much, by the way. But uh, <laughs> for that size engine, well, wouldn't you say something like it has it has a uh, all wheel steering, a 2.5 liter engine with 400 horsepower, which gives you uh, the which gives you the push when you need it and the control when you something, something. exactly right. You sell it. You you promote the the last part of that sentence more mm-hmm. than you would the first part. I mean, mm-hmm. you can kind of glass over that, I guess. Yeah, we could do uh we could do some cool car commercials. We I, should try that. I think so. So the idea here is that, you know, you're selling the uh the mobility, not the cars. Um is it really is this idea really happening and and it really is because oh, yeah. people are moving from the uh, from the the rural areas into more urban areas. There's so a, away from places where you would need your own transit to places where things are close enough to walk mm-hmm. or there's some kind of public transit. Yeah, and we're talking about car sharing programs, if I haven't already said it. I don't think I did. But, we haven't. Um, zip cars. But the idea is that actual you know, car manufacturers are kind of jumping into this game. They're saying, well, okay, well, I know, you know we're Mercedes and we don't normally do this, but we're going to actually have a, a, a car program called Car2Go, which is a car sharing program, which is one that they actually run. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be successful because we're going to sell it the right way. We're going to make um, changes to the way people think about car sharing programs. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's 
there's a certain absolute limit to how many cars can be in a city at a given time. Now, London, to speak candidly, Scott, is having a hell of a time with congestion, so so much so that there are road usage taxes mm-hmm. in place. Um, London's answer, historically, has often been to tax something. But, but, you know, Almost always. Uh, yeah, but it's true. So now, desp- uh, uh, despite these taxes and disincentives, people still have too many cars in cities. So we know that um, there is a shift in transit ownership, right? Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, with this men- one that I just mentioned, this Mercedes program, this car to go thing. Yeah, it- it's really dealing with the smart car you know, program, which uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not. The smart car vehicle that they offer. And um, the idea is that, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it'd be great to drive a smart car around, but sometimes I'm going to need a bigger vehicle. And what they do is they have partnered with rental car agencies to say that when, you know, someone who's in our car to go program needs a bigger vehicle, can they come to you and kind of trade it in for the day and use the truck or the SUV or whatever they need? And that's how that works. I mean, but you hadn't been able to do that in the past. You were, you were kind of, I don't want to say stuck, but you were stuck with that smart car. Yeah, you had the one choice. You could have any car you want as long as it's smart. So wait, I love this thing you just said, though, because it's true that that's a vulnerability of car sharing programs. Yeah. And it's so brilliant that car manufacturers would take it an extra mile and sell access to multiple vehicles and let drivers determine what you need when. If that I'm so skeptical, but if that worked, it would be it would be neat. Here's my only problem with this. And I think I've said it before, this moves away from ownership toward renting a service and only doing that. And it's something that we see in technology more and more often. The phone uh, plan that you have is more important than the phone you have. And actually owning the phone doesn't do you that much good. Um, I When I buy something, I want to own it. I want to be able to do whatever I wish with it, modify it, break it, sell it. Etc. And that's becoming increasingly difficult when we're being sold services that we don't actually, as consumers, own. But when you keep it in the context of a vehicle, you're thinking you're you're comparing more of like uh, like buying a car versus leasing a car. And this is yeah. essentially you're leasing a car, but you're getting extra benefits with that lease that you wouldn't normally get on a standard lease. That's that's a really good point, Scott. And then it goes into cost of ownership for a vehicle, too. That's true. And, you know, a lot of places are jumping on board with this, too. It's not just Mercedes that we mentioned. You know, BMW's got something called the Drive Now program. Um, I think I already mentioned that one. There's also, mm-hmm. you know, regular car sharing companies that already do this kind of thing. Sure. But as far as manufacturers go, Audi is doing it as well. And Audi maybe has uh, one of the one of the best programs that I've heard about, really, if you want to I mean, if this is your thing, if you want to do this. Oh, yeah, this is great. They launched a pilot program in Berlin recently that allows customers to switch among three different models for one monthly lease rate. So you just pay one fee and you've got access to three different types of vehicles. So you could take like a a little A1 or a TT for your daily driver through the city, Mm -hmm. go to a Q5 crossover if you needed to carry more stuff or some people, right? And then you could take an A5 cabriolet out for the weekend. Exactly right. So this is them selling mobility versus selling a specific car. They're not Mm -hmm. saying, you know, you know, buy this Audi because uh, it has fantastic, uh, you know, all wheel drive handling capabilities and and you're going to love that for the city driving that you do. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know what, the, you know, I'm bad at doing this, Ben, because I'm coming up with it off the cuff. But um, <laughs> the idea is that they're selling this idea that you've got access to three different vehicles, whatever you need to do. Um, you know, it's really versatile and you have, uh, you know, kind of that um, comfort level that allows you to say you can, you know, make a decision to rent this vehicle for the weekend, but you're not stuck with that decision for a full year or two years or three years on a lease. Yes, and that's a that's a good idea, and I can see why a lot of people like it. And maybe if I lived in a different city, then I would be more okay with it. But I just think that it's important to have ownership over things. Um, It's going to take a while for me to ever be okay with just treating mobility like a netflix account yeah i'm not comfortable with this at all either i wouldn't i wouldn't be a good ride sharing type person Mm -hmm. i'm not crazy about even public transportation or anything like that i like to have my own vehicle that i own and and be able to do with it what i want when i want and i and i like that i mean i do like the flexibility of that audi plan that's pretty cool 
But again, that's a vehicle that you don't really own. You're you're leasing a vehicle again. It's and it's it's not that you're you know turning the car in at the end of the day or anything like that. You're just going from vehicle to vehicle. So you you constantly have a vehicle. It's different than it's different than renting a car for a weekend and you know a convertible for a weekend and taking it you know mm-hmm. on the coast or something. That's that's totally different. This is something where you're in part of a plan that says you could do that every weekend if you want. It's all part of this one low price that we're offering you from Audi. I hope they have those uh, quote unquote vending machines. Like mm. out in China, yeah. those would be cool. They might actually sway my decision if I'm ever in Berlin for a few months. <laughs> those were pretty cool. So that is our list of ways in which the car is becoming a vehicle. Uh, based purely on the shout-outs to previous episodes that we have recorded, we are sure you can tell that a few of these things are familiar to us and therefore you Car Stuff listeners. But if you would like to learn more, visit carstuffshow.com where you can check out every single podcast we have ever done even some that weren't, you know, the best of the batch. Not our shining moments. Not our shining moments. But as Scott and I always say, uh, there's uh, only one that <laughs> ever didn't make the cut, right? That's right. Just one episode that never made it to air. Uh, so we also got presence on Facebook and Twitter. We would love to hear from you at CarStuffHSW. Uh, go there quick. Just like, uh, follow, or subscribe so that our bosses don't fire us. And uh, if you have a suggestion uh, for a topic we should cover in the future, or if there's something that we neglected to mention about one of these points, please let us know. Our email is, as always, carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.